0: I'm Michael White. I'm a music critic here in London, and I am delighted to be here with Francesco Piemontese, pianist extraordinary, um, and and indeed an all round musician, so far as I'm aware. You're, you're somebody who
1: engages in musical life in a very broad way. Well, yes, this is what I'm trying to do. I mean, the piano repertoire, as you know, is almost endless. You can go from medieval music to Renaissance and Baroque to... Stockhausen, Boulez, Unzug Chin and beyond. I mean, and I find it very, very uh, rewarding for myself to be um, working on different epochs and different styles with different composers, uh, both on intellectual and emotional and also on the technical level. I mean, every composer has a certain language, has a certain voice, has certain difficulties you have to overcome musically and technically. And um, I think it's a very privilege to spend a life uh, working on this matter. So I couldn't confine myself to one uh, or two composers.
0: I always think that one of the great lessons that, that musicians teach us, especially us in Britain as we stagger through the nightmare of Brexit, is, is to rise above the limits of nationality. And you are Swiss-born um it, Italian by cultural background you live in Berlin um you clearly know your way around Britain because you were a new generation artist here in London for the BBC and you you practice what everybody talks about in a quite blase way but it's a very it's a very profound truth you practice the universal language of music um are you proud to be a citizen of the world, or do you sometimes worry that you're a citizen of nowhere?
1: Well, I think both of them, but especially I'm very, very proud uh, of being a citizen of the world. And I think that Switzerland incorporates so many different cultures, you know, you have the, the German influence, you have the Italian influence, you have the French influence, um, and all mixed up in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. So, in 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 For some reason, Switzerland represents a very good ideal of living together of different cultures. And I think this might have fascinated Franz Liszt, for instance, in writing The Pelerinage. He spent some uh, months or some weeks in in, in the region where I was born, and then he spent a lot of time in in the French region and in the German as well. So I think he was fascinated by this melting pot of culture. and, And... So for me, going to Berlin or living one year in Amsterdam, as I did, or or studying here partly with Alfred Brendel in London and traveling, you know, to Japan, to America all the time, it didn't it was not something which was really scary. I was used to, to take the train and go one hour north and then speaking uh, German and one hour west and speaking French and, and, and being on the borderline to Italy. So I really much feel um, a citizen of the world. But of course, uh, by being so different uh, and, and by being so uh, such a melting pot Switzerland, it is not, it has not the strength of a national, you know, national pride, national, uh, uh, like maybe you have here or maybe in France or in Germany where people really feel, you know, Valhalla or you feel yeah. the heroes from, uh, from another epoch or and whatever. As, as somebody who is
0: Italian-Swiss, yeah. what, what, what dominates in that mix? I would you? say The it's
1: Italian or the Swiss? I would say it's 50%. I would say um culturally is totally Italian. I mean our city of reference was Milan and not Zurich. When we went to the opera we went to the Scala and we didn't go to Open House. Um, it it is cultural in in the school. I mean we we grew up with Dante Petrarca and and and, and we grew up with uh, mostly with Italian Renaissance art. But when it comes to politics, uh, especially my generation who saw the the rise and fall of Berlusconi, um, I think we were very happy not to be part of this. So I I would say it's uh, it's a medal with two faces, you see. You grew up in Locarno. Yes. On the shores of
0: Lake Maggiore. Yes. Um, A very desirable place to grow up, I may say. I mean, it
1: is a very beautiful part of the world. I'm surprised you ever wanted to leave it well actually i wasn't really aware until i left you know and then i went to study in hanover um and you know the first three months of my studies were, were spent to get to know the city and and, and and to find new friends and to study with somebody new and then to go to concert and and to the opera so i really didn't notice it at first but then i remember when the christmas break came in and I took uh, the plane to Zurich and then I took the train and then all this landscape showed up again. And then you arrive slowly, um, you know, you, you, you climb down the Alps and you, you start seeing the, the Lago Maggiore. And for the first time I said, my God, where did I grow up actually? You know, so <laughs> now I'm a tourist there. And, uh, Presumably you had an idyllic childhood. Yeah. Musical family? No, I mean, actually, um, very interested in music, especially my father. I mean, very, um, very, you know, with a big collection of discs and, and and LPs. And he still listens to such, you know, an amount of music, more than me, probably. Um, and he played the flute very, very well, but never on a professional level. So I was in this lucky situation of having parents who supported, but parents who were not musicians. So they didn't try to push me or maybe to make me succeed in, 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 in music in a way that they maybe wouldn't have had. You know, I've, I've seen many friends of mine with musician parents, and I, I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to have, to, you know, to have such, yeah. a, such a father or such a mother. It's often a very, very struggling situation. But you started the piano early. I was I about four. That's we, early. Yeah, it's yeah, it's early. But we had the kind of toy piano at home, you know, very, you know, one of these little things for children, um, and then. I actually don't don't even remember this, but my parents tell me that they, they even had to take me off the, the, the instrument. I was playing and playing and playing. And then, so my, you know, we had friends, or my parents had friends who say, well, you might take him to, to a music lesson, you know, and then this is what they did. And they took me to a violin lesson, but apparently the only thing I was interested in, was to ask at the end of the lesson if I could play the piano, which was in the same room. How how old were you when you decided the piano would be your life? Well, apparently in that very moment, you know, when I did ask ask my violin teacher that I wanted to play the piano. And then my parents bought me a a piano and actually I never changed my mind. So it went on very organically, very naturally. So there was never another option for you as a career? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, it grew organically without even thinking of it. And then we bought we bought a grant. And then I started uh, training at the conservatory. And then the first concerts came up. And then the first competition. And then the competition in Brussels. And then the first agency. And, and now I look back and, and I've done more than a thousand concerts. <laughs> it's really, you know, without even noticing. So it was a very organic very linear way without big dramas it it was meant to be. Among the people who
0: taught you when you were younger is Alfred Brendel and he was clearly a very important mentor for you. Can you say something about how that
1: relationship came about and what you got from him? Oh it was incredibly unexpected. Um, I had recorded something uh, for the new generation artist, and he heard the broadcast at the BBC, and the next day, I got an email from Alfred Brendel. So this was the most unexpected surprise that one could have. Um, and then he asked me if if I would if I was interested in, in in working with him, and we found very very actually relatively soon a date where I could fly to London and played for him the Beethoven Fourth Concerto, which I had to play. With the Belgian National Orchestra, a couple of weeks later, I think maybe I would say twofolds, uh, a twofold direction. The first is really to work on details, on, on you know, on the phrasing, the the tempo, the, the the expression of every note. Really, to think very much about it. Actually, it was. If you can summarize it, it was a school of of hearing, a school of of listening. And the second thing is that every day uh, of lesson finished with a very big session of of, uh, listening to older pianists, older musicians. So I discovered so many things about Edwin Fischer, about Kempf. Some recordings that he also had privately, uh, which came from the Fischer estate, like the Brahms' G. minor Quartet, which is something which you cannot find, um, uh, it, it, it was not published. Um, the Busch Quartet playing Beethoven, some unreleased Furtwängler recordings. So we spend a lot of time listening to this music and then to, to listen to his comments, you know, what he found in a certain passage. Fascinating. This um, got to teach me a little bit his frame of mind. Okay, this is something which fascinates him. And look, the fact of discovering somebody else's frame of mind, I think, was very important because this is ultimately what we're trying to do with composers. You know, I I cannot call Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart. I have to understand through the scores, through comparisons with um, other works, through through recordings of colleagues and and, and that people, to whatever, I have to understand what he means with a certain work. So to understand what the, you know what one of the most important pianists of the last century um, was thinking about a certain interpretation teaches me another way of thinking that I might disagree, but I might see, okay, this is very important for him, you know.
0: Well, one thing with Brendel is that his, his approach to repertoire went very deep, but it wasn't very broad. He focused on a certain small number of composers and, and, and lived with them. Um, your repertoire is, is much wider than that, isn't it? I, when I look at, yes. at, at what your schedules are, you, you, you go into a lot of different areas of music, including contemporary music, I which do. you mentioned. I do,
1: yeah. This is for the reason uh, we were talking at the beginning. I mean, it's just a curiosity. I want to explore the piano. I want to explore um, the piano in its sonorities, in its, in its possibilities. I want to explore the different epochs. I want to explore different kind of techniques in, 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 in realization of the sound of of, of of whatever, you know, of the expression of the emotions. So. I try to be as open-minded as possible and then there are composers like Mozart, Schubert, um, Beethoven, Janacek, whatever, you know, they, they are then Messiaen were more talking to my soul in a in a in a intimate way or in a in a very direct way. But I couldn't confine myself especially what I can I cannot understand our colleagues of mine who are playing one recital program a year and then trying to to get a kind of perfection out of it i couldn't stand it to play 90 performance with the same recital i would get mad you know i i need variety but then again when you take on something
0: as you have like the unsuk chin piano concerto you're you're never going to get very many requests to do that it's a, it's a
1: lot of work for a small number of outings. Well, actually more than you could think. I mean, I think that orchestras are getting, especially, you know, radio orchestras, like I've done it now with the Sto- Stockholm Radio Orchestra, the Finnish uh, the, the, the Helsinki Philharmonic. I will be recording the piece with the Orchestra de la Suisse Romande. Of course, you, you will get more requests for a Beethoven 4th concerto. But um, I think it's worth it because it teaches you a lot of things about the piano and also because I think that music has to live. Um, it cannot become a museum, you know. I, have, I feel that I have a responsibility towards uh, the composers of, of nowadays um, to help them, uh, their, their works to be performed, you know. They need us, we need them to play, we need composers to play um, to play their pieces, but they need us to bring their music to a public. So I think this might be the reason. So I then I don't ask myself, you know, uh, if if I only get five or six requests instead of 25 for a Beethoven 4th concerto, it interests me less, I would say. You've recorded the Debussy Preludes. Um...
0: And looking at your discography again, I, I I find no discernible pattern there. It's it's really quite broad ranging. Um, but The one thing I know is that one of the earliest recordings that you made was back in two thousand and seven, and you were on you were on a disc that was called Marta Argerich and Friends. Yes, you were one of the friends. Yes, wouldn't we all like to be Marta
1: Argerich's friend? <laughs> well, it was actually quite. Um it, it was unexpected because you know she had a, a, a piano festival or chamber music festival in my hometown in Lugano, and then through some friends, uh, we, I mean they got me to audition for her without actually me knowing it. She came to a concert where I played. Um, I remember playing the the Polonaise Fantasy by Chopin, Liszt Dante Sonata, and other things, and she seemed to like it very much, and then um, invited me to play at that festival. And then when I entered the Queen Elizabeth competition, I, I was actually living at her place. So I spent three weeks in her home in Brussels, and she was sometimes even accompanying me in second piano with the Mozart G Major Concerto, which I did in the semi-final, and Brahms Second Concerto in the, in the finals. So I had all that support from her. And at the beginning of my career, it was incredibly important because she... She was really calling up people and saying, "You should invite this guy, so it of course it made a huge impact that you know if she takes the phone and calls somebody, then the, the promoters take her very seriously so i'm I'm very grateful for that help you like working with friends don't you?
0: You like doing chamber music oh, yeah. with with a with the a, a, a group of people who you yes. work with regularly. And there are certain conductors I know you work with regularly, like yes. Andrew Manzi.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, we. I, I think we feel the same, especially Mozart, Beethoven and, and so on. We, we I think we feel very much the same about these composers. And we we like to explore these pieces in, in the same way. And this is also a very similar approach to mine, I would say. Um, the facts we were discussing before about the analysis and and then to bring it together with the emotion and then to forget all of this i think we we instinctively do it in the same way and also the breathing you know every every phrase has has a certain sense of air in it you know you, you cannot mathematically do whatever the score tells you. You you have a certain feeling for a phrase, where does it go on? Where do you have to take a little bit of time? And this varies. There are some conductors I didn't find myself at ease with because they breathe in a different way than I do. And then you always have to find a compromise. But with him it was always, I know that if, if I go on in a certain phrase or if I take time, in 90% of the cases even more you will do the same and this is of course especially in 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 countries like this one or in america where you have very limited rehearsal time with orchestras. is essential because you cannot lose time so working with people you know it, it gives you security of course it does i mean uh, you know it's it's i think it's 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 important because at least you have a common ground on, upon which you can build up a performance, and then you never know how the performance is going, is going to be. This is, I think, one of the mysteries of this of this, uh, of this uh, being a musician. You know, I, I remember playing five performances of the same piece with the Dallas Symphony a couple of years ago in, in, in five consecutive days um, in the same hall with the same orchestra, and every performance was different. So you have to know that uh, even if you know the conductor very well, if you know the piece very well, the orchestra, you will never know exactly how the performance is going to be. So there is an element of risk, which I think is very beautiful. Well, there's something I would imagine you know pretty
0: well is the repertoire that you'll be bringing to the Wigmore Hall later yes. this year. Um, you're doing a recital in November uh, that, that includes the ever popular impromptus, the first set, and you're doing the, the, the D major sonata. Yeah. Um, are, are you touring that program around other well, places? Well,
1: um, I would say this is the first pro, uh, program of uh, uh, six recital programs that I will do here at the Wigmore. Uh, which include the, the works of uh, Schubert from eighteen twenty two to eighteen twenty eight, so the last six years of his production, so the eight sonatas and, impromptus and stuff like this, and then, I will add in the middle also the list B minor sonata, which um, just to counterbalance a little bit. But I think so. This this concert is I, I can say it is the beginning of a Schubert cycle that I do here at Wigmore Hall. So I will not tour. Um, the whole thing in, in, in most of my recitals, but there are certain places like the Schubertiade in Austria and, and other concert halls where I will be presenting this cycle. And why have you chosen to start this cycle with that particular sonata? It's a big
0: sonata, the one in D, isn't it? It's 40 minutes. I know some commentators think of it as a sort of like a sketch for a symphony. It's, it's a big virtuoso piece
1: yes i think it is uh, first of all i think it's one of the um, i you know within this 1822 28 period is is one which is relatively at the beginning so i will end the two the, the three last concerts with 958 in the third last 959 in the second last and then 916 in the, in the last concert so and then it, of course it was a big challenge to find programs which um, are compelling in itself, you know. I don't want to, to do any encyclopedic work, you know, every uh, Deutsch uh, Verzeichnis of Schubert, you know, every piece which has been written there. I, I took a selection of these pieces and then presenting them here at the Wigmore Hall, which has been a musical home for me for the last 12 or 13 years, um, mm-hmm. with the public that I know and the public who knows me. So I want to share I think the the pieces within this time which mean the most to me and also I want to present them in a way which is compelling and makes sense. So I thought that this sonata, which is, as you say it's a big work and virtuosistic and, and, and quite on a big scale. And then to counterbalance it with the first set of Ampranteus, which I think is more um, light if I could use this word. It's more optimistic um, and I think it works very, very well. Also, to, um, uh, you know, to prepare than the mood for this, this big second half. I think it works very, very well. Because I guess one, one big distinction between
0: the Sonata and those impromptu's is that the Sonata was, was written for a professional to play. The impromptu's were written for the the popular
1: market, for amateurs. It could be, though I'm not so sure that with Schubert this is always the case. I find that his piano works often are, and this includes the impromptu's and the sonatas as well, are a kind of journal intime, you know, it's a a personal diary. You know, Schubert had, I think, a very, very struggling life, also on a musical basis, because if he was fighting like uh, like a lion to have success uh, with his operas and symphonies and actually never achieved that kind of success that he wanted and uh, believe it or not having written wonders like the, the 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 string quintet or or some of the latest sonatas one year before his death he inscribes himself to uh, for a counterpoint uh, Lesson with with Zechter, so can you imagine the damage that the society did to him to this man? I mean, so he, I think that that and he yet. was, yeah, he was. Sorry, he was destroyed in in this in this uh, in, in this relationship. I think, and I think he finds a way to express himself through this journal and team, which are the piano works, and to play them in front of this group of of people, which is called Schubert Yard. I think this is the 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 historical background we don't have to forget when we talk about these works, right? But in in
0: 1825, when he wrote the the, the D major sonata, I mean that that was a time when things were looking good for him, wasn't it? I mean the, he, he 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 had there's a confidence about Schubert at that moment in time. I know he's frustrated because he's trying to sell yeah. his his operas to opera houses that are not interested in them, but but nonetheless he he writes that sonata. Um, when he's, he's staying in, in, um, in, in Gastein yeah, on Gastein, holiday. Yeah. And that's a good time for him. And, and we know that, that he writes letters from Gastein back to his family saying, it's great here, you know, wherever I go, people know about my music. And, um, and, and at that moment in time, he felt a sense of acknowledgement
1: Yes, he did. Life. But you will agree that that it didn't last very very much. and I think especially towards the end, you know, towards this eighteen twenty seven twenty eight, another wave of, of despair came in again to his life. But it's true to see, and it's very beautiful to see that the the Gerstein period was um, really hopeful and the, and he was surprised um that some people very of course cu- cultural people people maybe from the aristocracy or whatever they they knew about him um about his works, especially I think about about some some of the leaders, some of the smaller pieces as you as you were saying it was the impprotus and more musico they found their way into the concert life or into into the I would say amateur concert, uh, you know, performance or whatever, um, much, much quicker than some of, of his larger scale works. So I I find myself very, very, you know, happy to see that this period of his life was a kind of revelation to him. He wouldn't have thought, you know, he, uh, he lived. I have the feeling reading the letters and, and, and seeing how much or how painfully looks at, at the works of Beethoven, you know, he, there are so many examples of, of how, how he knew this Beethoven works intimately well, and that at the same time, you see the re- incredible recognition that Beethoven had gained in the years in Vienna, uh, both as a performer, a big virtuoso and improviser, and also as a composer. And to see that for at least for a moment of his life, he comes out of the shadow of Beethoven, I think is very, very beautiful for you what's in a what's in a name
0: what's in the title of this these impromptus um I know that it's it's a name that was initially chosen by by schubert's publisher yeah. rather than schubert himself but but then he 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 adopted it for of his own choice for the second set of impromptus, so it must have meant something to him this word
1: impromptu what What does it mean to you well it, I think it means um a form um, in in music, which is maybe less severe than the sonata, something which, as the words in French say, improvises more. And yet, are they are they really improvisatory pieces? Well, I think on on the point of view, for instance, of the um, of the form, um, I would say some of them do, like the the first of them. Um, the the first of the first setting um has elements which you know what in 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 the middle part of of it you 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 don't know anymore where you are i mean it 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 wanders around and it, you don't you don't really know what is doing even in the variations which actually in, in, which is number 3 of the second set which are uh, formally somehow very strict, but it still wanders around that it makes every repetition a little bit different. Um, or aspects like the second emprunture of the first set, which uh, I think it remains until now one of the only examples um, of a big major piece which ends in minor. You know, this kind of twisting element, I think they could be seen. Um, in in this optic. At the same time, as you say, uh, for instance, the second set of Imprunt U, you could actually see it as a whole, as a sonata form, you know, with this big F minor um, first movement and then the last uh, F minor movement, which could be um, like in the C minor sonata, they could be used as a sonata as a whole. So I would say there are aspects which are controversial in this. You feel the improvisatory gesture in, in this uh, in this sense, as I was telling you before, but the same at the same time, you cannot compare them with the imprintus of Chopin, for instance, or the imprintus that Liszt and Cole, Libes, or whatever it is. It has, I think, both elements in it. I... I th- put it to you that that
0: these impromptus illustrate if nothing else the disconnect that there can be between the work of a composer and the life of the composer because they're they're written in 1827 and that they are relatively light pieces um and and he's working on them at a time and in a place Graz, where he's 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 actually spending time with his friends um, apart from the fact that he's frustrated about not getting anywhere with the operas th- th- this again it's, he's have actually having a nice time with these friends in Graz and yet at the same time that he's doing all this he's working on the last twelve of the songs in Winterreise, which couldn't be
1: darker than... Yeah, I would generally pay attention to draw parallels between uh, the life of a composer and his production at the time. One, one of the, I think, most striking examples is Beethoven's Second Symphony, wrote at the time where I think he's thinking about committing suicide, is writing the Heiligenstädter Testament, and yet I think it's his most jolly piece. Mm. And there are other instances as well. So I think it's very, very difficult to, to, to have a parallel between what the composer is doing in his production and how he feels um, in, in, in this period of life. Certainly, if you could do it in Schubert, I think this would be with the last three sonatas, which for me undoubtedly speak about death in three different ways, but they do. So I think probably by September 28th, which was the time he wrote these three last pieces, probably a complete despair and uh, maybe point of no return in his health had been reached and he knew about this. And I think all of this, all of his production of, of, of the last two, three months is dedicated to this. This I say, I would say, is very clear at least to me i can only talk about my response to music you know but um, how the music speaks to me but i think in other cases as in impromptu, as you as you're saying i mean the, the winter rises some of it is so hopeless and at the same time you have a lot of hope and you have a lot of dance music in the impromptus so i would say it's very 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 difficult to say he felt this way, he composed this way, but you can see um, within also the impromptus or within the Eventurizer the, the range of moods which are present in them. He probably could take these moods from different experiences he had in life, I mean completely depression and hope and whatever it is, and he put all of them into music. And this, I think, remains one of the reasons why Schubert speaks so much to me and I think to you and to, to most of us. It's so personal, you know. You can feel that the range of, of situation, the experience in life can be found in, in, in most of his works. And, and they speak to us in a very personal, intimate way. And I think, at least to me, without any sense of ego, you know, it's very, very modest and pure, a large part of the experience of your life these days
0: beyond playing the piano is running a music festival um and you do that on your own home territory in Ascona, which is next door to locarno um and you've been doing that since two thousand and thirteen or so yes, like I that?
1: started working a little bit before the thirteen was my my first edition, but I started working at the end of eleven. Look, it was a very emotional decision. Um, the Settimana Musicali, which is my festival, um, was the place where I got to know music. I was four and my parents brought me to a recital of Alicia de la Rocha playing Granados. Soon after, they brought me to the Dallas Symphony and and, and Slatkin um, playing Tchaikovsky Number 5 and they discovered all the music actually there. The first Goldberg Variations I still heard Franz Brüchen on 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 the recorder and and then uh, I heard Kopman and I heard modern music I heard so y- you can imagine what such a setting means to you I mean I thank And this
0: this festival in Ascona it's it's an old established festival Yeah it's it? we it's are getting
1: 75 Yeah so the you know it has a big history and, and many of the most renowned musicians of last century played there, from Elizabeth Schwarzkopf to Muti and Abado and everybody. So when the city of of, uh, Los, of Ascona asked me to take it over, I was completely amazed that they thought about me. But they wanted somebody who programs and at the same time is part of the program. You know, There are other festivals like this, like my friend Renaud Capuçon is doing the same in Aix-en-Provence. So. Um, uh, life of antsness in Norway and, and there, there are many instances. I think it's nice because the public then um, gets to know an artist and in this case they, they know me for a very long time because you know, they, they saw me in the first footsteps and they, they saw the evolution and so I think they trust also my musical choices behind You know, I'm not somebody who's just coming from a, a managing school and then tries to, to sell Uh, and then to make the program program as likable as possible and with likable I mean to program the four seasons by Vivaldi every time, you know. I I take my choices, I take my risks and I said it right from the beginning to the city. I said, look, I I will take my choices. They might be sometimes unpopular. I might take modern music into it. I might take artists you don't know and are not on the the first page of, of the Gramophone magazine but I believe in them. And I think it has worked out very well. Great thing about running a festival is that you can
0: you can make the music you want, yeah. and you can do it with the people
1: you want. Yes. So you bring your friends. I bring my friends, or I bring people um, that uh, w- where I would travel to to their concerts. You know, I would somebody like Elisabeth Leonskaya, uh, I would travel hours on plane to listen to her because I love her playing. And so I decided to invite her because I believe that this is among the best that we have. Stephen Kovacevic was by the way uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall yesterday. Uh, I believe that his Beethoven is one of his uh, one of the greatest things I've ever heard. I remember coming out from a uh, performance where he played the Diabelli Variations. I was completely shaken. I couldn't sleep at night. so this is the thing which um, interests me. And I must say, um, I've seen more and more a tendency um, in Germany also, very alarmingly so, to go in a, in a very commercial direction. You know, a major, uh, so-called major record labels brings out a newcomer um, with a PR machine behind, which is unbelievable. I must I must say that many of your journalist colleagues then completely you know they do they seem to do the PR together with the record label instead of you know really writing something they 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 simply write what the major label tells them to write this is my feeling and this creates a sense of um, you know Talking a lot about somebody for a couple of years, and then for some mysterious reason, this person disappears, and then the journal, many journalists write, "Oh, you know, he didn't, he didn't somehow survive the stage, whatever." And then the next person comes in, and this, I think, is a very dangerous um, way of looking at artists and and looking at careers because you create a kind of. Um, Event out of something you create, a, you scream a lot for a couple of years about an artist, and then you forget about him. And this is not what what I believe. I believe in quality, and I believe in 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 you know. I being thirty years uh, with the piano and with the music, it means that I have a certain experience, I have a certain way of listening, I have a certain way of of knowing what an artist does. And I bring this experience to the festival. And I think it has paid off because, and I'm not saying this for, you know, fishing for compliments, but I've I've gotten many, many letters, for instance, at the end of last year's festival, say thank you for bringing me this artist. I didn't know about him or about her, but I feel that there is something there which I cannot put into words, but I know that there is something incredible about this person playing. And for this, I think it's worth doing it. It, It's been a great joy to talk to you. I hope
0: I will be there in November when you come to the Wigmore to do your Schubert. And between now and then, good luck to you in the coming season. Thank you very much and looking forward to seeing you in November.